Thanks, comrades. Have a great time. Thanks, members. CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Well, good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. Hey, Carly, how's it going? Hey, Priya. Yes, it is the 18th of March. Uh, just ticked over to 701. Um, I'm good. It's good to be back in the studio. I haven't been here for a while. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited that we've got four live interviews lined up today. Yeah, it's going to be, uh, you know, hectic, but we can we can manage it. We always manage it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, gosh, it's been a big sort of weekend mm. since uh, since our last show, obviously, with um, the March for Justice that yeah. happened and associated controversy, uh, sorry, controversies with the March for Justice. Yeah, I mean, I think... Something really important to remember about that is if you're if you're marching on stolen land, you should be centering uh, the voices of First Nations women um, and also to be more expansive, I guess, with our with our imaginations about what justice for women and gender diverse people looks Mm. like past the carceral system, because I know there were some concerns about that, too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, as listeners should already be aware that Natsals currently have a campaign for families um, who have lost loved ones to the violence of the carceral state. Um, and, yeah, Natsals are supporting many Aboriginal families to seek justice and meet with the Prime Minister. Um, and, yeah, that was something that I think campaigners for the March for Justice um you know, were closer to achieving and yet they didn't really open the door for those Aboriginal families who have lost loved ones in custody. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is the thing. Um, whenever you have a platform like that, it's so important to, to be conscious of, of whose voices actually get included um, and whose voices get left behind and, and the implications of excluding people um, from that struggle. So, um in light of that, uh, we are going to be replaying an interview with Tabitha Lean from the, uh, that was on the Doing Time show last week on the 8th. So maybe we'll just jump into our rundown. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're listening to that conversation between Marissa Sposazzo and Tabitha Lean. And then we're going to be speaking with Scott Jordan, who's a Tarkine campaigner. Um, and, yeah, they're going to be speaking about the blockade at Venture Minerals Riley Creek mine site down in Lutruwita. Then we're going to be speaking with Bridget Chappelle. Um, I'm really excited to be bringing Bridget back on the show as they now have that exhibition, No Comment, up and running. Um, and that is an investigation into the science of phase cancellation, the phenomenon when audio waves work against each other, eliminating inverse frequencies and the theory of ungovernable space. So exciting. No comment 2021. No comment deferred. <laughs> 
Um, highly encourage people to make sure they're listening to that and check out the exhibition. Um, after that, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Ruth D'Souza, who's the Vice Chancellor's Fellow at RMIT University, and she's going to join us to talk about recent research on older migrant Australians' experiences of isolation during COVID-19. And Ruth is a nurse, academic, and community-engaged researcher in gender, race, health, and digital technologies, as well as an honorary senior research fellow at the Centre for Digital Transformation of Health at the University of Melbourne, and she has her own consulting practice. And finally, Tilda Joy from 3CR's Stick Together show is going to come on to chat very briefly about the special 3CR binary busting broadcast, which is going to air this Sunday, the 21st of March from 12 to 7 p.m. And um, spoiler alert, I have a segment in there as well. (laughs) I've interviewed the wonderful, incredible musician, architect, and just all-round staunch community member, Simona Castricum. So um, I'm really keen to chat with Tilda about that later. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. And now we're going to hear that interview uh, on Doing Time, where Marisa Spasaro spoke with Tabitha Lean last week on International Women's Day, which is a day that is not generally inclusive of Indigenous women, as we mentioned before. So Tabitha spells out the dangers of carceral responses to harm and what criminalizing coercive control could mean for Indigenous women experiencing family violence. The violence Aboriginal women suffer within the system, including community corrections via strip searching, over-surveillance, etc., and how recent calls by feminists to criminalise coercive control could in fact not provide protection, and note that, not provide protection to all, as feminists suggest, rather place Aboriginal women more firmly within the realms of the criminal injustice system. Hello, Tabitha. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to have you. So just to put things in context, and could you just talk about what land you're from first? Sure. I'm a Gunditjmara woman, born and raised on Ghana Yurta, and I'm calling in today from Ghana country. But I'm totally honoured to be standing on, and I want to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, for their ongoing custodianship of country. It is really great to have you back, uh, Tabitha. You certainly kept me going during the lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm glad that, um, you know, people are sort of up and out of their homes now. It's been tricky for people. Absolutely. So let's talk about what we were discussing off air, off air the other day. And I was just saying, to just to set the scene, in regards to violence against women, and, of course, we need to 
include institutional violence, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the, that's the thing at the moment. There's a lot of discussion about violence perpetrated against women's bodies in this country, but very little attention is paid to the daily and ongoing violence perpetrated onto black women and children in the carceral system. And that speaks volumes about the disposability of human lives behind bars, really. Absolutely. And so what can you just explain further what you mean when you when you say that feminists suggest that um, there's protection for all as far as women are concerned who are incarcerated? Yeah, sure. I'll, I, I'll just like, contextualise it a little bit so people know that I'm sure. speaking from a position of um, understanding. I have lived prison experience, having spent two years in Adelaide's prison for deviant women and an accumulated two years on home detention and remain tethered to the system on parole, or as I call it, open-air prison. I've also um, been in violent relationships myself, and so I think that I come to this discussion with a little bit of expertise in this area. So I just wanted to ground it a little bit. I, I'm certainly not an expert, but I have some experience. Um, so right now, we have a range of feminists and feminist organisations calling for the criminalising of a form of violence called coercive control. And whilst coercive control, in my opinion, is fundamentally damaging to the woman who is being controlled, the call by white feminists to um, criminalise this, in my view, by creating this new offence, it firmly places women squarely within the domain of criminal justice. And let's face it, there are always and often deadly consequences for Aboriginal women accessing the law, despite carceral feminists believing that the intention of this law is to protect us. It just fails to take into account what response women in violent relationships might want from a criminal justice system and what they might receive in reality. Because in my experience and the experience of many black women in this country, the more that criminal law tries to intervene on behalf of us, the more challenges it poses for us. That's whether it's from contact with the police to having to front court to giving evidence in a trial, all of this creates hurdles and has the real potential to cause us harm. And added to that, how can we even trust the police with extended powers, which would actually rely on a high level of discretion, a keen eye to identify patent abuse, and basically a good theoretical and practical understanding of gender and family-based violence. As Aboriginal women, we can't rely on the police for that because our access to safety and justice is almost always irrevocably compromised by the police. So I just think that it, what's being proposed at the moment, little thought has been given to alternatives to criminalisation in this country and across the world. We rely on criminalising people and this criminal punishment system so much that we've internalised this pull to punishment. But I think we have to move towards imagining and creating a world that is free of exile and punishment because we know that what we're doing to people within the system is not producing contrite, rehabilitated individuals, but releases us damaged and finding it really difficult to find our place back in the world. So, so even though that yeah. I've been a big, sorry, I've been a That's victim right. of this kind of violence, I just don't think that criminalising and, and putting people in jail helps the perpetrator, nor does it help the woman that might need to be, you know, phoning in for support or safety. 
You are certainly correct on that, and it, it's, in my view, as a as a radio broadcaster and also as an activist, it's important to provide help for the perpetrators as well. Absolutely, yeah. And look, I mean, I want to preface it by saying also that I'm I'm not saying that if someone's being coercively controlled, that they should not call the police. That's entirely, you know, their of right, course. and and maybe the only access to safety that that person has. But my issue with what's being proposed by Castle Feminists is that they, they see that imprisonment is the primary solution to violence against women. But the reality is, you know, coercive control is a strategic form of ongoing oppression used to instill fear. And, like, we know that abusers use tactics like limiting access to money or monitoring communication, you know, all of these kind of controlling efforts. But the reality is I am currently being coercively controlled by the state, under the parole system. And where are all of these carceral feminists fighting for my liberation? They're not. And this over-reliance on the criminal injustice system does not protect everyone. Not every woman in this country can call the police and be safely responded to. How would it be then if we could say, for example, that an Aboriginal woman or indeed a uh, a migrant woman or any woman from an mm. ethnic background, but we'll say Aboriginal women for the purposes of today because mm. that's what today's show is about. But let's mm. look at this scenario, Tabitha, and let me, let, me, let me know what you think of this. So mm. imagine if an Aboriginal woman um, is being beaten by her partner, then she mm. goes to call the police and the police in turn betray the Aboriginal woman and, and have racism towards her as well, how does that sit with you? Because that could happen, couldn't it? It happens now. In fact, um, one of our aunties was killed in custody literally for that. They called the police because their partner had breached a, a violence order. When the police arrived, they incarcerated her for having unpaid fines and then she was subsequently killed in custody. So... These imaginings that people think that Aboriginal women have about the violence and lack of safety that the police provide to our community are founded in fact. This happens all the time to Aboriginal women. We call the police if, we're, if we are forced to because that's the only option we have right now. And then we are in turn criminalised. And that's exactly what the, the criminalisation of coercive control could increase women's risk of being incarcerated because... That is the reality we face. It's the reality that, that we know that happens. And in Aboriginal communities, we try to... I mean, we've been doing abolition a long time. We do abolition in a way that we don't call the police on people, on our brothers, sisters or children, because we know that involving the police not only could result in that person being harmed, but us also. So it, to me, it just... It smacks of real privilege and unchecked privilege and arrogance to suggest that a black woman should trust the police in their most vulnerable moments. The same police, agents of so-called law, order and safety who kill black men in their bedrooms. So when carceral feminists come out and they say that we should rely on policing, prosecution and imprisonment as a primary solution to violence against women, I think how can they ask me that when I know that the criminal justice system has deep racial flaws and it will not end violence in the home? But it will tear at the seams of my community. Because not only does the police not protect the perpetrator of harm, they don't protect us as women either. 
How can we create safer communities then without protecting the perpetrator? Yeah, look, I think I think we have to think to ourselves of like, what is the current system doing? The current system is not providing protection to either the person being violated or the perpetrator. So I have to think, I think, how are we going to tr- transform this? Are we trying to make it so people don't harm each other? Are we trying to make it so that one person is incapacitated indefinitely? Like, what is the goal of what we're doing? And I think the goal is that we don't want anybody harmed again and we don't want anyone else to be abused or violated. So then the job ahead of us is not to figure out how to incapacitate someone better, how to lock them up longer or harsher conditions. The job ahead of us is to figure out what are the conditions that lead to that person perpetrating harm. So I think it's about building a world based in mutual aid and radical reciprocity. It's about finding local community solutions and approaches which prepare harm through accountability practices rather than punishment. That enables us to respond simultaneously to individual and systemic violence and we can transform communities and eradicate the structures that enable violence in its first place. I mean, fundamental to abolition is recalibrating our relationships with each other, with property, with state and with land and country. So it's about coming together as a community and thinking about ways of managing these these things and changing these institutions which produce people at harm. Because the reality is we are not innately criminal people. We are not innately evil. Like harm and criminality comes from some other place. It's why, you know, people are always talking about even in sentencing, in trials, of all the, the things that that person has gone through that have led them to that point of offending. Like we can't separate people from that. And as members of community, we have to take some complicity in what is happening and the complicity in these systems and people who are harming. So I want us to love people beyond who we want them to be. I want us to focus on abundance and healing, not scarcity and harm. I want us to centre community and I want us to shape life rather than support systems that take life. And all of that sounds really Pollyanna, I know. People are always saying that to me, like, what do you mean, like, just love people beyond who we want them to be or just love people more? But the reality is if we did love everyone and if we cared enough about our neighbour, our fellow community members to know what's going on in their lives or know the things that they're experiencing that could lead them to perpetrate harm, then I think things could change. I think I think we could just be a much better and a happier sort of place than we are right now because at the moment all we do is we wait for people to harm and then we punish them. And what we do is yeah. we punish them and we we perpetrate harm onto them. There's no prevention. There's no there's no, no early intervention or prevention. No, and there's no care. There's no care. What we see is someone who harms and we want to exile them and punish them while they're there. And then when they come back into community, they're not accepted as full citizens. They're not accepted as rehabilitated citizens. They go back they and do it again. a life. Well, and they carry a lifetime of collateral consequences. I mean, myself as a criminalised woman, I've come back into community as a contributing member of this community. Sorry, Tabitha, I just want to interrupt there. When when Mm. I said meant that, I meant perpetrators go out and do it again. I didn't mean you. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 but sure. But but the reality is I'm also a perpetrator of crime. You know, I I have a criminal record. I have perpetrated an offence against society. And this is the thing is that when we bring people back into communities, 
that they exist as these kind of quasi-citizens with quasi-rights and yes. even more so they have these collateral consequences. So it's just not working for us. And what we know about people who commit these kinds of offences, including sex offences, is that they are put in prison with other people who have the same offences. Mm -hmm. But all it does is strengthen their networks and their understandings of their criminality. It doesn't do anything to rehabilitate and support them to come out and heal and be contributing members of society. So I just, I think it's a really backwards way of working. And, you know, Aboriginal people within the system, every time that they're brought into the criminal punishment system, they are at risk of being killed in custody. So to put a black man in prison for perpetrating violence, to me, all it does is tear at the seam of our community. The potential is that he will not come out alive. However, what we know is that Aboriginal people are not innately criminal. I mean, the delegates from the Uluru Statement from the Heart asserted that in their invitation to the Australian public. But what we know is that colonisation criminalises our people and it leads to this kind of offending. So I'd really like us to look at our society and our communities and the ongoing effects of colonisation and treat that rather than saying we will lock up anyone who coercively controls a woman. And that was an interview with Tabitha Lean um, by Marisa Sposaro from Doing Time on 3CR. And um, they were discussing the dangers of the carceral responses to harm and what criminalizing coercive control could mean for Indigenous women experiencing family violence and why mutual aid and radical reciprocity are better solutions to explore. For anyone who's feeling a little bit distressed by that conversation because there was some pretty heavy content, you can call Lifeline on 131114. And also, you can always contact 1-800-RESPECT. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we We are are from from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to head into a new track by Izzy. This one is Frantic. Thank you. 
track there was Frantic by Izzy. Scott Jordan, Tarkine campaigner, now joins us on the show to speak about the blockade at Venture Minerals Riley Creek mine site. Yesterday, activists blocked the mine site in an effort to prevent works on the controversial and environmental destroying project. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Good morning. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of this blockade? Because I know that it has been active for quite a while now. Yeah, well, look, we've been running the, the blockades in the Tarkine area um, of northwest Tasmania, that amazing wilderness area. Um, we've been running those blockades now for, for five years. And so for the first two years, we're in an area called Franklin River, which was threatened by imminent logging. Um, and then... We had success there and they took those coops off the schedule. Um, we then moved into the Sumac Ridge area um, and, and from there we were able to defend that site and, and site further on at Rapid River and we were successful again there. And in the last year they removed 34 coops across the north of the Tarkine in that area we'd been defending. And so this year we've been able to focus our attention in the south of the Tarkine where we're, we're camped in at a blockade in a, in a coop that... Um, they started logging last year. We we um, intervened and, and held that site for four days before they removed the machines and retreated. And so we've been holding that blockade since the 28th of December now. Um, but but also, 10 minutes down the road from that site is is the Riley Creek mine site that where Venture Minerals wants to commence the first of their three planned uh, mines in the Tarkine. And so... While we're there, we've been taking advantage of it, and Venture Minerals has attempted to restart works this week, and so we've we've um, met them with protest, and yesterday we were on site to, to prevent access to that work site. Yeah, so can you speak a bit more about yesterday's action? Yeah, well, look, yesterday we 
um, we moved a, a bunch of volunteers onto the work site and we um, erected a, a couple of structures, um, um, two vehicles that, that we moved onto the site and then through the floor of those vehicles, people um, had locked themselves into lock-on devices um, positioned in the road. And so um, we were able to prevent um, the, the miners from entering that work site. At the moment, they're trying to build a, a wet screening plant. And if that plant goes ahead, then it's it's full steam ahead for strip mining for iron ore in, in an area of world heritage um, value. Um, and is there already mining that's occurring in the Tarkine? There is legacy mining in the Tarkine. We have... Um, a very large mine in the centre of the Tarkine. It's been operating since the 1960s, and so our boundaries have accommodated the fact that you know, that damage is done and we can't change that, and so we've we've not had conflict with those existing mine uses. We've simply um, made a stand and said that there shouldn't be any new mining in the Tarkine, that the mistakes of the past shouldn't dictate the mistakes we make in the future, and that we, sh- we should be protecting what's left of that beautiful place. And so Venture Minerals have... have come up with their program of um, these three proposed mines um, well well after the conservation um, campaign for the Tarkai had commenced and, in fact, during a period where it was being assessed for national heritage, which, which of course, led to a recommendation that it should be national heritage listed. Um, this company's come in knowing the values of the place and knowing the, um, the depth of, of passion there is in the community for the defence of it, and, and yet they've pushed ahead. And so... Um, they, they, I guess, brought this conflict to us in, in, in many ways. Yeah. No, um, Tarkine or Tukanya, um, it's one of the areas that um, I haven't personally visited myself, although I've just actually come back from a trip to Luchawida and I've travelled everywhere else. Um, and it seems to be, yeah, one of the places that the Bob Brown Foundation is really committed to protecting. Um, can you speak a little bit more about the Tarkine and... Um, yeah, like, like, yeah, just what it is in that place. Yeah, well, look, firstly, you, you obviously missed the best bit um, and you, you'll have to return. Um, but, look, it's an area of outstanding um, natural value. It's an area that contains Australia's largest remaining temperate rainforest um, and, and it's best known for that rainforest area. But as well as the rainforest, we've got... Huge areas of of button grass and heathland, reminiscent of the Scottish Highlands, across um, you know it's amazing uh, outcropping granite country. Uh, and then we've got along the coast, we've got um, a whole range of, of uh, coastal terrain, and and ranging from sand dunes to um, the the coastal vegetation areas of, of, of various heath and and um, tea tree forest down there. But we've also got this um, incredible legacy of Aboriginal history down on the West Coast. And, and the Australian Heritage Council at one point described it as Australia's richest concentration of Aboriginal archaeological sites. And so, you know, the Manigan and the Benedict and the Tardakona and the, the Pirapa people all lived along that coastal area and the, the various um, bands of, of Aboriginal people who lived further inland would come down to that coastal area each summer and, and trade with them for the rights to to uh, fish for shellfish and and hunt for seal along that coast. And so it, it has this rich heritage of being the place that many tribes assembled over that um, summer period and, and that's all still visible in the landscape, it, yet still under threat today from 
uh, government that allows off-road vehicle use through those really sensitive Aboriginal sites. Mm. And so, yeah, there has been an active blockade for quite a while now against both the logging and then also, yes, yesterday you blocked access to Venture Minerals' Riley Creek mine site. Um, But what can listeners do that um, aren't at the blockade right now, especially listeners that are listening in from NAM? Yeah, look, what people can absolutely do is is, um, write to their local member of federal parliament um, go and visit them, make an appointment, go and visit them, and, and just tell them that this is an area that, that shouldn't be subject to logging or mining, or and the coastal area in particular shouldn't be subject to off-road use through those sensitive Aboriginal sites. Um, just go and tell them that you don't want this to happen, that you're an elector in their area, they represent you, and, and you don't want your voice added to those that are calling for the destruction of this area. Um, it's a really powerful um, thing that you can do. Uh, as well as that, you can um, get onto the Bob Brown Foundation's uh, website or Facebook group and, and lend your support there. We have various actions happening around the, the country and we're currently um, you know, rolling out a bunch of film screenings across the country of a film um, called Forest Defenders that was produced from our blockades and, and forest actions last year by activists telling the activist story of a year in the in the campaign. And um, we do have two screenings occurring in Melbourne next week, which you can find on our Facebook um, page. But also um, our whole organisation runs on donations and everything we're able to do is, is reliant on, on us having the, both the volunteers and, and the funds in the bank to be able to pull off um, these campaigns. And so please get on and donate to the Bob Brown Foundation. But if you can give your time, that's even better. Um, I like to remind people that, that you know, Melbourne's two hours from the Tarkine, an hour on the plane, an hour in a car, and you're at our blockade camp, and, and you, know, you could be out there helping us on the ground, um, you know, defending those beautiful forests. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that I'm going to be contacting the Federal Environment Minister, Susan Lay, because she has the power to intervene and halt this destructive project. And also, as you were previously talking about, nominate Tarkine for the World Heritage listing that it deserves. Are there any last thoughts that you wanted to share with listeners, Scott? Look, uh, it'd be great to see a whole lot of people in Melbourne turning out for the film screenings next week and, and, and hearing our story and having it chat about how we um, you know, we can reach this campaign out outside of northwest Tasmania and maybe telling the Melbourne and the rest of the world around about this but um yeah get, get along and um, you know but if, if you're not able to certainly get on our website Facebook page and lend your support great well thank you so much Scott for joining us on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast Alright, thank you And just then we spoke with Scott Jordan, Tarkine campaigner, who spoke to us about the blockade at Venture Minerals Riley Creek mine site. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life, Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes 
on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to head into a track by Barker. This is 22 Clan. Clan. 22 Clan, baby. Yeah, yeah. Dead their door, set the record straight. My team heavyweight. One mob rep and we the first to originate. Y'all can try to discriminate, you've been doing it anyway. We just keep stepping, coming up, watch us salivate. Deuceside, Layla Bark, Rivers in the pen rip. Mac Ridge ripping, no, I never let the pen slip. Mary's at the crime, bro, way up to the ridge. One log to the mob, out in West Side. So said, you better be ready to get it. I'm spitting the kick in the rhythm and moving the difference. I go on and listen, we're bringing the vision of how to get with it. We got them all dripping, listen. Murray from the Mac Town. Not here in Black Town, no question about it. Joey got to bring it back, so what's the half? Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Where we be? B and E down to SYD. Steady rapping for our original piece. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Where we be? B and E down to SYD. Steady rapping for our original piece. You say I'm oppressed, but you oppressed in the mark. on the floor, soak it up, snowflake, why are you crying for, if it's just only a day, it's a day, where all my women got beaten and raped, babies got buried in the sand and they got kicked in the face, took our heads back as tokens, yeah, I will pam away, I stay proud of my culture, but convict culture's the rain, you can call me back, I'm back and cheat of the bone, black and strong like my tribe, waiting for our river to flow, I run my mouth like Kathy's legs and I back it all up, got my brothers on the sideline and the run the ball up, what? From the big smoke, but this tit is connected. Well respected, I'm a reflection of my mother's perception. I stay flexing, even when I question some of my lessons. It's a blessing I have this melanin in my complexion. I got my mob on my back, Curry cried to the death. We're gonna breed them more black until we've the last ones left. And I am backing down from no one till I give my respect. Yes, I'm a little radical, but you just get what you get. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Where we be? numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. 
or call the station on 94198377. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and now Bridget Chappelle joins us on the line to speak about No Comment. No Comment is an investigation into the science of phase cancellation, the phenomenon when audio waves work against each other, eliminating inverse frequencies, and the theory of ungovernable space. Bridget imagines an anti-carceral, speculative future of sound technologies and tactical defence to phase, cancel the cops in material, political and psychic terms. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, No Comment is back 2021. We're all very excited here at 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Um, yeah, just tell us how you're feeling at the moment. Oh, I'm just excited that it's um, finally happening. It's been through um, kind of so many different, um, like, versions and different attempts. And, yeah, you interviewed me uh, pretty much this time last year about it because it was meant to happen just before, yeah, COVID hit. So it's, yeah, it's cool that it's finally underway. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really interested in talking to you about how you've been going with your acoustic long-range device technology (laughs) Um, because I know that, yeah, like you've commented before on social media that that has been used more frequently over the last year. Yeah, I mean, so... We already knew that, um, like, most police forces in Australia own long-range acoustic devices. I mean, it's likely that every police force in, like, each state and territory owns them, but just, you know, like, most of them were already openly talking about it, um, but they hadn't been used uh, in public, to our knowledge, um, until May last year in Wairang, Sydney, um, against Black Lives Matter protesters, um, which kind of felt like a bit, yeah, well, I mean, it felt very significant because I think I was always just kind of, like, waiting to see, like, when are they going to first crack them out? Because you know that the cops would have been, like, sitting there waiting to, like, have an opportunity to use these, like, expensive new toys of theirs. Um, and the fact that, um, yeah, now they have been wheeled out, yeah, surprise for, like, a project mm. situation. I guess it feels a bit precedent-setting, um, and I think we'll all definitely have to be, like, paying close attention to see what they do next time there are, like, big protests like that. Um, so, yeah, it feels, like, pretty pertinent timing to, um, yeah, have a workup about this. I think one of the one of my big aims is um, long range acoustic devices or LRADs in the show is to be able to um, like a just like let people know more about the technology because it's a bit niche um, and b uh, yeah uh, provide this space to actually kind of well essentially experience an LRAD but in a controlled environment um, because you would only really ever experience this technology as the object and not the subject. Um, So in the exhibition, there is like a miniature LRAD that I've made um, and you can kind of like, 
yeah, you can stand in front of it. You can see how it like reverberates around the space. You can actually aim it yourself, but it's like, yeah, small and playing at a really low volume. And yeah, like I guess usually when, when cops use LRADs, they're playing sirens and mm. other, um, like usually pretty high pitched sounds through them at extreme volumes. Um, and mine is actually just attached to an iPod and you can play whatever you like. Um, no, that's great. I love that. Yeah, you're bringing people into the space, and that that yeah, what you were saying that you know people aren't just like the subjects of you know the sonic weaponry, um, which will happen um, in the future and is already happening, as you just said, down in Wurong and Sydney. Um, yeah, and they're quite hard to like. It's quite hard to describe to people. I mean, unless you're like an audio nerd or something, maybe it's it's pretty hard to imagine what is an LRAD unless you've kind of experienced one. So, yeah, I, I hope it can be, like, practically useful in that way. Mm. Mm. Um, and can you speak um, a bit more about your exhibition, No Comment, and some of the other tools um, of phase cancellation that you're exploring? Yeah, so actually, like, in the exhibition, facing the LRAD that I have in there is this um, shield that I've built, um, uh, which is, yeah, an active noise cancelling shield, active noise cancellation for um, folks who haven't come across that term before. You may have come across the technology before in headphones if you have noise cancelling headphones. So it works in exactly the same way. Um, it's just that sound is a lot easier to cancel in a very tightly controlled environment like headphones. Um, where you basically have like tiny little microphones on the outside of the headphones that are listening to the world around you and then um, reproducing that signal in tiny speakers on the outside of the headphones. So, yeah, to, like, produce this, like, mirror image of the sound waves that are coming in, send them back out and so cancel them out, basically. And so I've got a shield that I've made um, actually just from a bin lid um, because it was the right shape and they're really easy to source um, that has a microphone on the front, what's called a shotgun microphone, so a hyperdirectional one that then goes around the back to like a tiny little battery-powered amp that's mounted on the back that then goes to what's called a transducer, which is the um, like movable membrane inside both speakers and microphones that makes them vibrate in response to either a electrical signal or a sound wave. Um, yeah, so it turns the bin lid into a speaker crane, basically, yeah, sending that um, signal back on itself that the microphone is picking up. Um, I kind of like the idea of using a bin lid because it references, like, really thin sound systems. The bin lid is kind of the only part of the bin that isn't getting used in a really thin sound system. So <laughs> you can just, like, take that off and turn it into a shield and just take the whole thing to a protest. Um, and then I've also got, uh, yeah, this like pretty um, huge based of sound system that I've <laughs> built. Um, I call it the function two in reference to the function one, which is like the kind of um, like gold standard club sound system um, <laughs> that people frost on. Um, and it's also just like, yeah, but mine has like two functions. <laughs> <laughs> This is like this weird, unreasonable standard that I always hold 
solve my own art too, where I'm like, oh, I need it to do more than one thing. It can't just sit there and talk about <laughs> stuff. Um, <sighs> but yeah, this the the function too is meant to be kind of like, I guess it's meant it's kind of like the most like science fictiony part of the exhibition because it doesn't like. <sighs> It's more just kind of like imagining what ultimately we could do with face cancellation if we um, reach a point with like the popular technology of it. Because I suppose, yeah, you can you can be sure that um, you know like the military and tech companies are developing mass scale mm. face cancellation systems. Like yeah. it just it makes sense that they would be doing a lot of research and development into that kind of stuff the same way that we've seen them develop long-range acoustic devices. And so I just thought, well, yeah, like it makes sense that we would try to develop similar technologies. Um, I'm not a physicist. Um, I'm barely a sound engineer, so it's really my hope that just in making this kind of prototype of this sound system and kind of mapping out okay, so here are the microphones mounted on the front, they go to the amps at the back, they send the signals back out. Um, maybe, like, other people who come and, like, engage with the work and are, like, you know, better scientists than I, then maybe that kind of leads to this open-source development of the technology. Um, it's also just a really sick sound system. Cool. <laughs> so what will um, people experience with this Function 2 sound system? Um, so... Like, yeah, aside from just being kind of like uh, something that I built for like demonstrative purposes, um, the actual sound that I have playing through it is a track made by, yeah, my close friend Bridget Flack, who, yeah, many people knew in NAM, uh, either as, yeah, Bridget or her DJ Monica, DJ Brigida, um, who, yeah, a lot of people will remember there was this huge search mounted for her in December last year when mm. she went missing um, that was then, yeah, really sadly followed by her memorial um, because she died and it was, yeah, like, I don't know, pretty cataclysmic for a lot of people here, um, myself included. And she made, like, untold contributions to, like, the rave scene in Melbourne, her and I like works together a lot um, to put on raves and she produced a lot of other events and like taught people how to DJ and um, yeah I don't know she's just like a very inspiring figure I think mm. and um, she uh, yeah like made this tr she was just starting to get into production basically and she made this track that she never released um, and we were just kind of like me and some friends um, we were just like sitting on the track and not totally sure what to do with it. Um, and I already wanted to dedicate the function to to her memory because she, I don't know, she was around a lot while I was building it. Um, she would keep me company in the studio um, while I was putting it together. And yeah, I just then kind of, yeah, it took on this um, quality of, yeah, being something that I wanted to use to honor her memory and like yeah reference her in the work and her contribution to everything that the work is about um so yeah now it's kind of this experimental mode of like releasing some of her music as well that you mm. have to be on site to experience yeah. so it will play 
lose track every 20 minutes and then fall into silence in a gallery setting because I think, like, yeah, I didn't want to just blast people with sound constantly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. I really hope that people can, like, yeah, enjoy listening to her track in this way and, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Amazing. If, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, incredible. Um, and, yeah, I can't wait to listen to that track and what a beautiful way to commemorate her. Um, and, I mean, a lot of your work is actually around silence as well. So what have you been thinking about in regards to silence over the last year? Um. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, yeah, our sonic landscapes have been pretty interesting in the last year, hey. <laughs> Definitely in the first lockdown, I was one of those annoying people who was really enjoying how quiet everything was. <laughs> um, I mean, in regards to, like, policing, though, the funny thing is, not funny, but, like, you know, the vast majority of it happens in silence. Like, cops don't usually let you know that they're coming um, figuratively, you know, like sirens kind of like as like the point that a lot of people have made is like why would you want to face cancel sirens because sirens are quite useful for letting you know that cops are coming so that you can kind of like I don't know adjust your behavior or or like protect yourself accordingly um yeah which is totally true I think that my like beef with sirens is more on like a philosophical level because I see them as being very effective self-polices um So I wanted to kind of like, yeah, if we take it like slightly away from the realm of the practicals for a minute and just, yeah, can step into this um, like liberated imaginary where the sirens don't exist. So when, yeah, let's say that you're engaging in some kind of like illegal activity, maybe you hear sirens, but you keep doing the activity anyway, or maybe the sirens just don't exist because maybe by this point the police don't exist. So I wanted to invite people into, like, just, you know, this kind of, like, momentary space where, like, something else is possible. Like, Mm. the sirens have been face cancelled and maybe, like, the people behind the sirens have been um, taken out of the equation somehow as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a very, like, potent silence. That, that could be created, right? Mm, I love that. Potent silence. <laughs> um, and I know that all of your work is so collaborative. I remember talking to you last year and, you know, the way that you got all of your speakers was just through, like, emailing everybody at 3CR being like, hey, does anyone have yeah. some speakers? <laughs> um, and then also, like, leading up to this exhibition as well, you've hosted um, a series of, like, workshops with people, um, exploring yeah like different ways to like use sound and then also you're doing this collaboration with debris facility can you talk a little bit about um yeah all of these ways in which um you know you're working with different groups of people yeah i mean like calling it a solo exhibition is definitely a misnomer because there's been so many people involved um constantly and like that's yeah what's made it really rich to kind of work through. Um, Debris is doing um, what you could call exhibition design, but, yeah, they're really just, yeah, they're helping me with the, um, just, yeah, bringing the exhibition, like, into fruition, um, which has been 
um, yeah, really wonderful chapter in our um, collaboration. Um, the person who originally curated the show, Thomas Ragnar, has moved back to Singapore, um, which has been a, yeah, a sad loss for the work, um, but, you know, we're still talking about it a lot. Um, Dahan, a friend and another sound artist, has been helping me with No Comment Together, the, yeah, the working group that you mentioned. Um, he's been taking us through a lot of uh, really fun exercises in, yeah, like kind of sonic protest tactics, uh, which you'll meet again tonight if you come to the Alley Cat event, which is kind of like the treasure hunt that um, will send you through the CBD um, from the exhibition onwards. Um, yeah, a couple of the works I built in collaboration with friends. And yeah, as you say, like, yeah, speakers poured in from all over Melbourne when I put out the word that I was looking for them, which has been incredible. People have been really generous in, yeah, donating materials and time and expertise to it, um, which I'm super grateful for. And, yeah, tonight will be, like, another demonstration of that. I've got, um, yeah, a bunch of friends that are coming to help with, yeah, this uh, so-called alley cat that I mentioned, which is, that's just the name of this um, style of, uh, like, bike race um, the bike messengers put mm-hmm. on. I used to be a bike messenger, so I, yeah, really like these events that are kind of, like, um, yeah, you're given what's called a manifest at the start of the race, which is basically a list of clues, and you have to go to all of these places that the clues are kind of, like, giving away to you and either, like, get something checked off by someone or perform a task or, like, take a photo of something and text it to someone. And then, yeah, just kind of... And you often have to, like, kind of choose your own route through like mm-hmm. all the list of clues, like knit together like what you think is the best way to go to go through them all. Um, and I suppose it's like not really testing your speed so much as like your knowledge or interpretation of the geography. Yeah. Um, and there's a prize to coming first and there's a prize for coming DFL, which means they're fucking last, <laughs> which is so it's kind of like, you know, there's no shame in coming DFL. It's kind of like maybe saying, oh, you've got the most curious mind. So <laughs> it's the longest like, through the space and you probably found the coolest shit along the way. <laughs> oh, that would probably be me just because I just don't know the I mean, geography of Nam very well. <laughs> yeah, I would like, probably find some really cool shit along the way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, an adventure. Um, um Lastly, Bridget, can you just tell listeners about the where the exhibition is located and, yeah, how listeners can find out more about your work? Yeah, um, so it's in what's called the Nicholas Building, which is on Swanston Street, um, pretty much just like one block up from Flinders Street Station. Um, yeah, if you put Nicholas Building into, like, maps, you'll be able to find it. You come in and go up the elevator to the 7th floor um and then there'll be signs and sounds for you to follow um great and it's exhibiting from tonight to what day in uh, april tonight until until the 7th of april yeah so like if you want to come at a time when it's like 
well, a bit quieter in terms of, like, other people around. Like, yeah, very welcome to come any other time after tonight as well. And, um, yeah, if you want to, like, chat about any of my work, I love pen pals, so please feel free to hit me up. Um, uh, I guess, yeah, I have a website that's my name or an Instagram, the texttape.wav, it's the name that I make music under. Um... Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Bridget Chappelle, for joining us on 3CR to talk about Thanks your exhibition. <laughs> and that was Bridget Chappelle talking about that new exhibition, No Comment, which is an investigation into the science of phase cancellation. So, here you are, too foreign for home. Too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. And we're back on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. 8.55 a.m. And now we are about to have a conversation with Dr. Ruth D'Souza, who is the Vice Chancellor's Fellow at RMIT University and who is going to be joining us to talk about recent research on older migrants, uh, older migrant Australians' experiences of isolation during COVID-19. So, Ruth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I don't usually talk to anyone at this time of day. I know. It's, uh, it's, it's an early... Uh, an, an early call time, but we're really glad to have you on. Thank you so much for the chance to talk about this work. Yeah, so maybe we'll just jump into it. What was the impetus for the project and why is uh, this issue so important? So um, we've got about 24 million Australians and one in every six of those Australians is age 65 and over. And 95.3% of older Australians actually live in private households with only 4.6% living in residential aged care facilities. And I guess I'm really interested in the, myself and the team from Monash, Bendigo Health, etc. We're really interested in, in the experiences of the people, the 20% 20 of older people who are aged 65 and over, 
that use care and support from formal health and aged care services. So, you know, 80% of people aged 65 and over don't receive any support from anybody. So we were really interested in this group and how they were doing. And we're also aware that about 2.65 million Australian family members and significant others provide informal unpaid care. So we're kind of interested in, in how this group also support older people to stay in their homes. I mean, if an informal carers were replaced by formal carers, it would cost over $40 billion a year, you know. And I guess also migration has made the ageing population more ethnically diverse. At, at the moment, overseas-born Australians are mainly European, uh, but people aged between 50 and 64 are from, eight, you know, we've got this big group coming from Asian countries particularly. Um, and what we know is that compared with the older Anglo-Australian population, older people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds um, have a poorer socioeconomic status in general and might face other barriers in accessing services and are exposed to being misunderstood and missing out on services because of their different cultural practices and norms. Um, so we were really interested in the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and what kind of impacts there might be on older people who've been told to physically distance because they were seen as a high-risk population. And I think for many of them, it meant that opportunities to see and interact with other people were decreased, which might compound any existing limitations on social connection. And, and the thing is that there's this kind of techno-utopian idea that technology will fix everything, and especially social isolation. Um, we were really interested in what kind of inequalities to accessing and using technology there were. Um, you know, for this group. And so we did a very small pilot study to look at how older people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds coped with physical distancing and their experiences of social isolation and loneliness, um, how they got along with accessing health services and how they use technology to connect with their friends, family and services. <coughs> Pardon me. And I guess what we were hoping was that our research would help us figure out what might help this group to have access to timely and appropriate information, uh, support resources, and culturally safe services. So what we did, and, and we did this all on online, uh, at, sorry, remotely, I should say, uh, we conducted a qualitative study and we phoned everybody. Initially, we thought we'd be able to um, video conference with participants, but... So few of them actually used video. I think out of the 10, we only had one that was comfortable using Skype or FaceTime. And I guess I'm used to my parents who I talk to on FaceTime a few times a week, you know. But what I realized is I've trained them how to use it, you know. Um, and our 10 participants were born in Brazil, Egypt, Greece, Hong Kong, Italy, Malta, and Sri Lanka. And all but one resided in Melbourne. We had, we had a participant from Adelaide who heard about the study via Twitter, and she was the only one that we talked to via video. And, uh, you know, there's obviously pluses and minuses um, to doing it that way, like, you know, not, not having visual cues and so on. Um, and I guess in terms of findings, um, what we found is that most of the older participants lost the usual means of communication and engagement. 
So um, because they were told to stay at home and only go out for an hour a day, um, some of the participants were involved in um, outings and groups run by councils, and they were replaced with daily phone calls. Um, but these were really quite an inadequate replacement for time with their families and people in their group. Mm. Um, and I guess one of the things that was really very, very painful and sad was uh, one of our participants lost her brother who was in his 70s. Mm. And the challenging part about that was, um, you know, how do you grieve a relationship of over 70 years? And uh, and then go home to your house instead of all the kind of cultural rituals you might have had where you're comforted by your community. Um, so there were big events that people missed out on, like um, births and, and deaths and obviously grieving. So as well as the very ordinary things of just, you know, having company and going out with people. There was one woman who liked to catch a tram and take herself out for a buffet lunch once a week. And, um, you know, her, her children said, no, you can't go on a tram. And so, you know, there are all these kinds of um, losses of, of connection and enjoyment and pleasure that occurred with with the, the lockdown. Yeah. And I I've mean, talked far too much. I've talked no. far too much, Craig. <laughs> no, you're fine. I mean, I think you're just hitting all the questions that I wanted to ask you anyway. But I think... Um, yeah, this really got me thinking about, for example, there is um, an older Greek woman who lives on my street um, who I have built a really wonderful relationship with, but I found myself thinking a lot about how isolated she must have been during this time because, you know, she used to see, you know, a lot of her social contact was seeing people come by every day, um, you know, walking past her place. And, and I yeah have been had been thinking a lot about how she might be able to access information but also access social contact which is just so vital especially for older people who um who are already quite isolated anyway um so thank you for going through that and i think it is really important to amplify this um i just wanted to ask as well about the decision to translate your research findings into an image form in this guardian article that came out recently because i think that's a really beautiful way to convey um some of these experiences that people were having yeah thank you for asking about that prayer because it was sort of one of the, the the coolest things that i've done in my research career and um, one, of, one of the things that um, I've been agonizing about as a researcher is how to make research meaningful to community members, because my work has always been participatory and with community, and I see my accountability to them, uh, not just the academy or my community of researchers. Um, and so I was trying to think, um, you know, Who's going to read the journal article? You know, um, what kind of impact is that going to have? And I had a tiny, weeny amount of money, and I thought, um, what if I try and capture this in a visual way so that um, you know it can reach more people and have more impact, um, particularly for people who might be older from called backgrounds who might recognise themselves or their stories in it, and also. Um, with their family members. And so I asked the amazing artist, Safda Ahmed, if he might work with me. And then what we did was um, we had a few kind of stories that, that we'd summarised, the research team. And, uh, you know, asked, I asked him if he'd work with me to kind of convert them into a visual form, which is what we ended up in The Guardian. And so then I 
um, hassled the Guardian to publish it and said, please, this is really important and you've published stuff so before, so um, we'd really love it to be published, and they did. And, um, you know, that, that's been amazing from an impact point of view, um, Priya, and I know that you're a researcher as well, you know, and the thing we want is, um, our work to make a difference. And um, what's been amazing has been the kind of people that have contacted me personally and said, oh, that story really resonated with me, you know, like uh, of the woman losing her brother. You know, we lost our nephew during COVID and we couldn't grieve as a family or a community. And so I think um, stories and images really touch people in a way that um, is really difficult in this long form that, academic researchers are typically kind of encouraged to provide or, or work with. And, um, you know, that, that just made me so happy because I'm a registered nurse who's based in an art school. And um, I really want to use artistic and design methods to um, communicate research findings because we know there's such a gap between uh, you know, research being conducted and then findings being implemented. Yeah, and I think like something something as well that I found about the visual representations of of these stories that you had captured through your research is, um, you know, being able to have those images accompany the uh, experiences people were articulating was just also a very good way to cross the language barrier, um, you know, for people who might not speak English as a first language, but who are also kind of experiencing these feelings of isolation to be able to just, you know, have a visual representation um, uh, that that captures some of that that common feeling of, of isolation and of confusion and of, of loss during this time. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad that, that that resonated for you in that way because that's, that's really what I was hoping for. That, that we'd have minimal text and, and these very powerful, beautiful images that Safta has drawn. Yeah, so um, with that, where can people find out uh, more about the research findings and also just, um, yeah, I guess more information uh, about the project in general? Um, so we've got a little landing page, page, and maybe what I'll do is I'll send you the link to that. Uh, and we're, the team are in the process of, of writing um, all the research up. Uh, one of the tricky things has been uh, the start of semester and sort of the move to hybrid learning. So a lot of us are kind of juggling madly. Um, but the plan is to, um, you know, get something in the works that's uh, more detailed than this first kind of cut of the research. Yeah, well, we will have to... Um amplify that when we know uh, where to send people. We will send links and we will plug it on the show as well. So let us know when things are out and we'll promo that so that people can go have a look. But for now, I would say uh, check out the Guardian article for sure if, if you haven't already seen it. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Ruth, for joining me and discussing this really important research. Oh, Priya, so lovely to talk with you and look forward to catching up with you in person one of these days. That's something that we're all looking forward to post-COVID or, you know, in between COVID um, and really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this on your show. Absolutely. Thank you. And that was an interview with Dr. Ruth D'Souza, who's the Vice Chancellor's Fellow at RMIT University and who joined us to talk about recent research on older migrant Australians' experiences of isolation during COVID-19.
Ruth is a nurse, academic, and community-engaged researcher um, who is working in the field of gender, race, health, and digital technologies. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. FreeCR's Binary Bardstein broadcast is airing seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to the 2021 Trans Day of Visibility and as part of BiHealth Awareness Month. Bringing the noise to the Western gender binary. Tune in on Sunday 21st of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender-diverse voices Busting binaries, including in areas of art, culture, politics, well-being and resilience. Towards the Transgender Day of Audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash binary busting. The 3CR Binary Busting Broadcast Project is financially supported by a Pride Events grant from the Victorian Government. And we're back on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And now I am joined by Tilda Joy, who is going to speak to us about 3CR's special binary busting broadcast. Hey, Tilda. Hey, how are you going, Priya? Thanks for having me. Yeah, pretty good. Thank you for coming in. This is um, this is also, I don't know, for people who are listening, you probably don't know, but it's very exciting to have somebody actually in the studio, but it's only because you're another 3CR person. <laughs> well, it's exciting to be on air live. It's been about a year for me since last time I've been live to air, so that's... Yeah, you're coming on to promote the binary busting broadcast, and then you'll be back on air doing the binary busting broadcast. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a huge day. It's coming up, well, if listeners just heard the ad, it's um, coming up on Sunday from 12 to 7. Um, and yeah, it's just all um, trans radio producers um, covering all different kinds of things, you know, and, and you'll be on there as well. I yeah. will. Yes. Uh, 4 p.m., make sure to tune in. Oh, it's 4 p.m. Mine's yeah. Okay, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make a note of that. Sure. Um, Yeah, and we've got heaps of stuff. We've got, like, your regular programs, like Sally Goldner is going to be bringing on uh, Out of the Pan, and MV is going to be doing a special episode of Queering the Air. Um, But then, yeah, we've got some special programming, like yourself. We've got um, Sassy Sin from Behind Closed Doors doing a special show. Um, And, yeah, all kinds of things. Uh, Some live music later on. We've got... uh, Serene Ailment and Uboa, who are both um, trans femme people from here in Nam um, and doing kind of like industrial kind of noise stuff, which is going to be really exciting. Um, and yeah, having a discussion about like why there's so many trans people in the noise scene and, and this kind of thing. And um, yeah, how, how people like ourselves find ourselves 
in those places. Um, discussions about well, you're you're interviewing Simona Castricum. Yeah, we're going to be talking about um, space, spatial production, and trans people moving through space. And um, I think yeah, it's it's just been so amazing to get the chance to sit down and, and speak with Simona, who is an architect and a DJ, and also a solo and collaborative musician, um, because it was just yeah, really. I think Simona provides so much of that language to articulate trans experiences of space um, that I think sometimes can feel just out of our grasp. Um, So I'm really excited for people to hear that interview. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, I can't wait to hear it myself. And yeah, I think um, it's really good that we're kind of using this opportunity to pump up kind of like trans people in their culture as well, the ways that we kind of like glom together and and make our little scenes. because, you know, like, and while that's in there, we've got, you know, panels about, like, prison support and trans health care and some of the, the issues in our communities as well. It's really good to kind of, like, discuss how we can be resilient and how we can make our own communities work. And, yeah. Yeah, I think especially because it's in the lead up to the Trans Day of Visibility <clears throat> and, like, being able to talk about things about our visibility that aren't, um, you know, that aren't that aren't reactive and focused on, you know, having to having to respond to negative portrayals because there's been so much horrible vitriolic coverage in the media just this year of trans people, um, you know, and just in Australia, even though we know that there are things happening worldwide like bills going through in the States. Yeah, it's horrific. Yeah, and just to be able to have, you know, like that seven hours of programming to talk about the cool stuff that we're doing, um, you know, trans <laughs> yeah. people are... We're a lot more than just, you know, survivors of transphobic violence. That, that's absolutely it. And, like, I'm, I'm a trans woman and I always kind of, like, I prefer the term trans day of vengeance. I think it's <laughs> a, yeah. b- a bit more on point. But, like, I kind of bristle at this visibility narrative because, you know, I am hyper visible if I'm on the tram, if I'm in it. Like, people are always staring. Like, I'm always seen. <laughs> um, trans day of audibility is really what I want to achieve on on Sunday, right? Like where we're speaking for ourselves and, you know, people are listening to us talking about us and what we want to see in the world and what we're already doing in the world. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really pumped. I think it's going to be great. I also like that you said Trans Day of Vengeance because when I think about the Trans Day of Remembrance, I really just think of it as the Trans Day of Revenge. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think um, it's going to be such an exciting broadcast and I really look forward to this going to air. I hope that I get to swing by and see how it all plays out when it's going live. But can you tell listeners where they'll be able to catch it? Yeah, so you can catch it here on 3CR, AM on your dial, um, or live at the 3cr.org.au. You can just stream it live. And um, if you want to catch up later, we'll be uploading the podcast as they become available at 3cr.org.au slash binary busting. Awesome. And that will be from 12 to 7 p.m. this coming Sunday. So make sure to tune in. And follow your socials too. We'll, we'll be posting. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learned in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. 
genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. We are back for the last little wrap-up of the 3CR Thursday morning breakfast show, 8.55 a.m. It's just coming up to 8.26 in the morning. And I think we'll take you through what we discussed today. So we started out with an interview uh, from Do In Time, where Marisa Sposaro spoke with Tabitha Lean last week on International Women's Day, which is a day that is generally not inclusive of Indigenous women. So Tabitha spoke about the danger of carceral responses to harm and what criminalizing coercive control could mean for Indigenous women experiencing family violence. And if you did tune into that interview and you were experiencing any distress, or if you just need to access some support anyway, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or you can access 1-800-RESPECT. And then I spoke with Scott Jordan, Tarkine campaigner, who spoke about the blockade at Venture Minerals' Riley Creek mine site. Yesterday, activists blocked the mine site in an effort to prevent works on the controversial and environment-destroying project. And then we caught up with Bridget Chappelle about their new exhibition, No Comment, which is an investigation into science of phase cancellation. And Bridget imagines an anti-carceral speculative future of sound technologies and tactical defence to phase, cancel the cops in a material, political and psychic term. Um, And the exhibition is located at Blindside, Level 7, Room 14 of the Nicholas Building at 37 Swanston Street in Nam. And definitely check out Hex Tape. Um, And then you can also look at Bridget Chappelle's website as well to follow more details about that exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. And the alley cat for that is tonight. So look up Bridget Chappelle and check out more details um, on their website. And after that, I spoke to Dr. Ruth D'Souza, who's the Vice Chancellor's Fellow at RMIT University and who joined us to talk about recent research on older migrant Australians' experiences of isolation during COVID-19. And I really recommend checking out a recent Guardian article uh, where Ruth D'Souza teamed up with an artist to share the team's findings. And finally, Tilda Joy from 3CR's Stick Together and Sewer Shows came on to chat about the special 3CR binary busting broadcast, which airs this Sunday, the 21st of March from 12 to 7 p.m. So I reckon that's it for us today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Priya. That was a great show. Always is. (laughs) (laughs) See you next week. Stay tuned for Lost in Science. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? 
Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.